So what what are what are you doing in your car? My it's nap time at my house and you have to be extra quiet um in my house when children are sleeping and so because I knew that this was going to be a rowdy I got to I I have to call from my car so that I don't wake up my sleeping son what are you doing in your car solidarity well well dear students when dr Payne told me that she might be in her car i thought you can't have a fair debate if she's in her car and i'm in front of like a bookshelf full of like books making me look smart so here i am in my wife's car uh you know in my driveway that's what i'm doing that's right that's um, right <laughs> Now, students, we have a few confessions to make. One is you've been seeing these very nice intros we were doing in Bauman and so on. Um, I know we, we thought ahead we, while we still could be on campus and do that stuff. We did do it. It was great. Um, but actually, somehow in the in the in the in the in the in the tussle and the bustle and the hustle, we forgot we to forgot. make one for this for this thing. So this is our introduction. This is the debate for this week. Um, we would have been in Bauman introducing it in front of the marker board, but we're actually in our cars. That's right. That's right. And we are debating something related to this week's line in the creed, um, which is about the resurrection of the body. And um, uh, you all have seen a lecture that I gave about uh, the hope or how the the resurrection of the body is the hope of the Christian life. And we're going to get into the weeds a little bit on a really specific theology about the resurrection of the body. And I'm excited about it because I actually used um, at one of the scripture verses that we're probably, that's probably going to come up today in my lecture um, from oh. Ephesians. So oh. yeah, um, I'm pretty excited about this. Dr. Doak, um, do you remember when you were like, when, when was the first time it really dawned on you about the idea of the resurrection of the body, like that Christian bodies would be resurrected? Well, it probably came up for me when I was a kid in church. We were, my family was kind of in and out of church in a way, but I, I think, I think it came in completely entangled with this idea that we're about to discuss, namely the idea of the rapture, which we're going to explain in case you don't know what the rapture is, don't worry, fear not. Um, and, and, and yeah, and I think in the course of the debate, some of the, the, you know, the, the frame or the context in which that, that idea came to me um, will become clear. But I think it was entangled with that idea. Do you have a specific moment when you remember first thinking about the resurrection of the body? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, I remember when my, my step-grandmother died. Um, when I was, I, I didn't know her super well, um, but I was a junior in high school and I went to her funeral and it was the first time I'd actually seen a dead body. Like oh. I hadn't, I hadn't seen like a, a, a corpse before. Mm. And so um, I remember when I was sitting there in the funeral home and I, you know, because I, because I didn't know her super well, I wasn't feeling like the the feelings of sorrow and, and grief that you might like what I'm saying, you know, a grandparent, but, um, but I do remember just looking at her corpse and thinking like, 
that something's missing, you know, from, from her. And, um, and I think that that was the first time as a young adult, when I started thinking about the idea, like, oh man, Christians believe that bodies will be resurrected. And I'm looking at a body right now that does not have the breath of life in it, you know? So I think that's the first time. And, you know, I was becoming an adult. And so I was starting to think about things in a more adult way. So yeah, yeah. that'd have to be my this topic of the resurrection of the body and even, even the debate we're about to have, I think, and, and even on into next week as we continue to, to, you know, continue with this topic, but move into the life everlasting and, and maybe have another debate, a kind of a part two to this next week, if all goes well, is this, is, I think is a bigger kind of huge Christian question that animates all of this, which is like, how important is this life actually? Like, how important is the material world? Are we trying to escape it? Are we trying to inhabit it? Are we trying to save it? Are we trying to use it? Are we trying to leave it behind? Can't say, can't do the, can't do the um, get out of jail free card answer, which is like all the above, everything. You can do all those things. It's like some of those are, are mutually exclusive, right? Like if we're trying to save the material world, we also wouldn't want to escape it at the same time, right? Um, but, you know, so I think there are consequences for one's view on all these topics. And so hopefully this debate we can have is a way of, I don't know, just like getting into this a little bit and then going deeper into it next week, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So, so students, we're going to be talking, we're going to be debating um, a, a doctrine that is not in the creed. Um, so it, this is not one of those essential doctrines. Um, it, an essential Christian doctrine is, but a non essential doctrine is belief in something that happens to bodies um, called the rapture. And some of you may be familiar with this, um, and some of you may not be familiar. Dr. Doak, when, like, sure. did, did you say it was when you were a kid in church? Yeah, and just so you know, on my end, which, by the way, I'm recording this on my Zoom, sometimes the audio is lagging a little bit, or there's an instability to the connection. Hang in there, students. Sorry about that if that happens, okay? But just hang in there. We're just going to keep coming until it cuts us off, okay? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I can describe it. Should we just do the debate? How about you? Should we just get the phones out and get the timer going? Yeah. Okay, so you're going to have five minutes. So Dr. Doak is going to... Seven, seven. I get seven minutes. Don't, don't, don't take my time. Oh, yeah. You're trying to take my time away. Already, see? See the tricks that are pulled when this goes to the car. It's like anything goes, okay? Um, right, that's right. <laughs> Dr. Doak is going to get seven minutes to argue for the rapture. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to have seven minutes to argue against rapture theology. Yep. And then we will have five minutes of discussion and we will ask each other discussion questions after that. Yep. So, all right. Yep. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. It's on. Okay. Students consider this. I'm in my car here. I'm reading from the Bible. Um, it's not our class Bible, but it's the same translation, okay? This is in a book called 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just listen to this and think, like, what in the world is this guy talking about? This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and following. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, 
will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. If we're to visualize this as Christians who take scripture as God's word, as, as inspired, as authoritative for our life of faith and practice, how are we to take a passage like that? It sounds as though the author there is saying there's going to be a resurrection, resurrection of the body, resurrection of the dead. Um, and that Jesus, in fact, is coming. Remember that from earlier in the creed? He will come to judge the living and the dead. But that part, he will come. Jesus is arriving. The early church believed in this idea like very intensely. It's something that's not as popular of a, of a doctrine to talk about in the contemporary world. Maybe it's because, you know, we're all so comfortable here in our cars during a pandemic, for example. Okay, but, you know, comfort can come or go, right? And the early church was a persecuted group, was an underground group in some places, maybe. Scholars debate the extent to which it was persecuted or underground, but let's just say, this is a group of people who thought Jesus was coming again and wrote about it in scripture. Jesus even talks about it too. A passage I might not have time to read occurs in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus makes this cryptic reference to like something happening and a person being left in their house and another person being gone and a person walking through the field and the person's with them and then that person's gone. What in the world is this author talking about? The Christian idea of what is called the rapture is a way of making sense of passages like these. The idea that Jesus really will come again. The idea being that Jesus will come again, maybe even suddenly, maybe even at a time when it's not really so obvious or when people don't expect it. Um, and Jesus will take the faithful to be with him. Now, I admit fully, when getting into the weeds in this doctrine, it could get kind of silly, right? Like, is Jesus going to just like rip my body up into heaven? But then what happens to my clothes? What happens to my apocalypse blankie fleece? Will it just like fold into a little pile on the chair where I'm sitting? Will God take my clothes with me too? If he doesn't take my clothes, then there'd be weird. Cause if this moment happened when Jesus comes again, those who are faithful, those who are, we might say saved or, or with Jesus get taken away. This rapturous thing. This is the rapture. But then like, you know, like, what if I'm driving a car down the highway? Like, does my car just careen out of control? I'll come back to that point. Remind me, Dr. Payne, to come back to that point, okay, later. But because I want to stay on, on, on point here on the debate. So this is this idea that, that believers would be taken from the earth in a climactic moment, in a mis granted, a mysterious moment to be with Jesus is something that's here in First Thessalonians 4 and other places. The books of Daniel and Revelation have been really important for this idea as well. They don't really narrate that idea, though, that, that 1 Thessalonians 4 does quite in that way, that people will be snatched up like that. But they talk about the idea of turmoil and of chaos that comes with Jesus' coming, his return to earth, the so-called second coming. The first coming of Jesus was, of course, in the first century AD, like in the Gospels. That, that there he was. Um, he was there. Um, now, something that people use to debate against the idea of the rapture that does come up a lot. I'm going to call it, it's a certain logical fallacy. It's called, I'll call it the genetic fallacy. It's the idea that if you can point to the origin of an idea or say that something came later in the history of ideas, that then means it's false. Could mean that, or it might not mean that. How we find out about something or when an idea becomes popular has nothing to do with its truth or falsehood. It's just, um, and it's true that Christians have gotten much more, we might say specific about the rapture and some of the kind of like weird details of it 
more recently in history, but it is a fact that early Christians, like the author of 1 Thessalonians 4, very much expected Jesus to return any moment. And it's also the case that a lot of early church thinkers after the New Testament in those hundreds of years, they might not have believed in a rapture or called it that, but they did definitely believe Jesus was coming. How that looks and so on, yes, these details are up for debate. But what I'm arguing for here is a climactic, singular rapture moment, people. When Jesus comes from the clouds and when we are whisked away, clothes or not, to be with him, okay? Um, I think that this doctrine is important for Christians to cling on to because it's, it's scariness in a way, it's spookiness, is, oh, it conveys urgency. I think at least an emotional urgency that we need. And even if the doctrine is not to be taken literally in every way, I think sometimes we have to engage in spiritual thinking that symbolically gets us in the right mood for thinking about who Jesus is and how we will be judged. And the rapture is just one such doctrine that can get you in the mood, my friends, for thinking about being judged and being held accountable for who for me to be held accountable for who I am and what I do. The rapture proclaims that Jesus is coming again and that Jesus will in fact um, take his followers out of this world. Jesus has not left us. A, a kind of a symbolic um, point we might look to is, is Noah and the flood. What happened with Noah and the flood? Well, the world was wicked. Things were going very bad, but God chose his righteous person and made a way out for him. This doesn't mean that we don't have to experience suffering in this world. Obviously, Noah probably suffered when quarantined in the ark with his kids. Okay, I'm just guessing that that's someone would suffer when quarantined with their kids. I don't know that someone would feel like that because I don't feel like that, but maybe people do feel like that, okay? But the pattern is that God rescues Noah, that God, in fact, helps Noah, that God has Noah build this ark and, and saves him while the world undergoes a different fate apart from the, the righteous. The rapture proclaims this idea. And so that is why I argue for um, a basic literal understanding of the rapture based on 1 Thessalonians 4 and other things. Oh, I landed it right on time. Come on. You did. You did. All right. Okay. okay I'm, All start right, you I'm starting your clock and... It started five seconds ago. Okay, so students, I am going to argue that the rapture, um, as articulated by Dr. Doak, um, first off is, is the softest version that he could have chosen for you all um, because um, he didn't want to give it to you straight up. You guys <laughs> a little nervous about how it would sound. So, but even, even the doctrine that Dr. Doak gave to you, I'm going to argue is an attempt to make something understandable that is not meant to be understandable by humans um, in, in our particular space and time. So um, Dr. Doak is totally right. This is a newer idea. And um, I actually, I'm fascinated by this idea. I grew up in a movement that um, preached a, a kind of rapture theology. And I'll say um, now that uh, it can actually, it can be spooky and in some positive ways, but also some really scary ways. So I remember as a child waking up from a nap at, in my family home, like I was probably 13 or 14, old enough to be home alone. And um, I was scared when I woke up because I thought that everyone had been taken um, to be with God, but me for a second. So I think that some of the scary 
things about rapture theology can be energizing, but they can also be kind of terrifying. Um, so the, the history of rapture theology actually comes, um, it, it got really popular in the late 19th and early 20th century in the United States. Um, and it was directly related to a version of the Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. And what um, the Schofield guy named C.I. Schofield, he was a lawyer who um, had a really scandalous public uh, career as a politician. And there was a lot of mystery about why he could no longer be a lawyer or a politician. And then he converted um, to Christianity through a really famous evangelical guy, a guy named D.L. Moody. And he created a Bible that was based on the teachings of a guy whose last name was Darby, who basically believed in a doctrine called pre Premillennial dispensationalism argues that when the second coming happens, um, there will be a, a time in between uh, when there's a rapture and when Jesus finally returns, a time of intense tribulation um, and, a, and a time of intense suffering. But that doctrine is not universally accepted in Christian circles. There are some people who believe, in fact, that when Jesus arrives, it will be because believers have worked together on behalf of the gospel to usher in a uh, usher in that coming kingdom. So there are some people who think that the world's going to get really terrible before Jesus comes and makes everything right. Other people think no. Um, believers will work together and usher in the kind of kingdom that would welcome Jesus. So I want to say that the idea, uh, mo the vast majority of people who believe in the rapture have this premillennial dispensationalist view that God works in a specific way over time. And one of the ways that God will work is through this rapture. Um, so what I'd argue to, argue to you all students is a, a hardcore belief in the rapture is actually um, the, an attempt to take a bunch of scriptures that are not necessarily meant to be like specific timetables for when and how Jesus will come back again. And it's, it's an attempt to satisfy a kind of anxiety that we feel, um, especially as Americans, because we like to be able to know when and how and where things are happening. Um, but the scriptures actually let us know that no one will know the hour when Jesus will return again. And so um, the idea that we are going to be swept up with Jesus in a particular moment in time is sort of making um, the passage in Thessalonians that if you read it with the rest of the New Testament in mind, um, it, it is meant to be um, a, a anticipating the return of Christ, but not in the in ultra specific terms. So Jesus himself didn't expect uh, people to know exactly when things, you know, when he was going to be returning. Um, and so the rapture theology, we, um, the rapture theology, I think, makes us um, anticipate his return in overly specific ways, almost like we could control it or we could know. Uh, so I want to suggest to you all um, that actually because it is a newer theology that doesn't mean it's wrong certainly does not mean it's wrong but it's something that we should subject to thinkers over time so um one of my favorite theologians um actually has this idea that um we should listen to the christians who've gone before us and he calls it the democracy of the dead so a, a doctrine like the uh, rapture theology 
I think is just too young for us to be able to say, yes, we should add that into um, the pantheon of, of, of Christian theologies because we need extra time to think and discern. And I think if we take that time to think and discern, we'll see that actually what we learn about rapture theology tells us a little bit more about what Christians in the late 19th and early 20th century were thinking about, what they were concerned about, what they were worried about. It tells us more about that than it tells us about the person of God or, in fact, about the second coming. So you can believe staunchly, I believe in the second coming, um, and I don't think that you need to have rapture theology to believe that Jesus will return, that he will judge the world, and that um, we will be raised with him. Um, that doesn't, you don't need the rapture for that. The early church had a staunch and um, beautiful belief in the second coming. They did not have this rapture theology. So that is my pitch to you all. I don't think you need it. I think it's too young. I think it's the return of, of Christ, something that you can like control with your, with, with human reasoning. And that big event will be wonderful to be controlled by human minds. How am I doing on time, Dr. Doak? So I had 12 extra seconds. You ceded 12 seconds to the- I ceded 12 seconds. All right, five minutes started now for open conversation. Yes. Here's the thing though about, I think you did a great job of talking about how Christian readers need to take the Bible holistically, not just picking a passage out here or there. Um, but it is true though, that in the history of theology and doctrine, we do sometimes rely very heavily on particular passages about things. Um, so that's not crazy to do as a principle. It would be crazy to take something that seemed in tension with or contradistinction to other passages and then use it to rule over them. But I don't think there's anything elsewhere in the Bible that suggests in a clear way that First Thessalonians 4 wouldn't be taken the way that it, now granted, and this is another thing I grant you, it is mysterious. And Dr. Payne is correct. Sometimes people, maybe even you out there, I don't know, or your families or your church, sometimes people who believe in the rapture believe in it in ways that are like ultra specific. Like, these eight things will happen in this exact order. And it's based on a very cryptic kind of like detailed reading of vague passages. I'm not promoting that, which is why she made fun of me for promoting a soft version of the rapture. But I, I grant that first Thessalonians four is mysterious, but then again, it's kind of not mysterious in the sense that it does narrate this idea that Jesus will come suddenly. That's also something from Matthew 24 and that it won't be the work of Christians doing good deeds and kind of making the earth a better and better place until Jesus thinks it's fit for him to engage with us in that way. But rather it's something that God just does like in a very specific moment. And I think that that is not a soft version of the rapture, but that's at the heart of rapture theology, that idea, don't you think? Yeah. But I actually don't think that that's rapture theology. Like the idea that we will be like taken up into the clouds to, to meet Jesus. What I think is core to rapture theology is the idea that there's some time distance between when like particular believers are are like taken up with Christ and when Christ comes and rules over earth. Right. And so I think that in no, I don't know of any era wherein Christians didn't think that when Jesus comes back, like we'll be taken up um, and the dead will be raised. Uh, to meet Jesus in the air. I think that's like an awesome imagery and I don't even know what that means exactly. But I think 
that the core idea of of rapture theology is the idea that there's this moment there there's a significant amount of time we don't know how long it will be it could be a thousand years between when people are taken and then when jesus comes back and um that i don't think is present in that passage so it doesn't it doesn't actually say that the passage if you read it talks about how it it, it actually talks about this christian theology of of the resurrection and it starts with our grief right like we don't grieve like those people who don't have hope and then it goes into this thing like this is what it's going to be like it doesn't mention that there's a space between you know uh, i hear what you're saying i i think though i think what's more central to the rapture belief you might be right from a certain kind of technical standpoint about the specificity that people treat it. I grant that completely. I think though what's more core to it at, at a deeper, like bigger level is this idea that there will be a suddenness to it as opposed to ideas which are actually very popular in some Christian circles, which one of which you brought up in your, in your part of the debate, namely the idea that Christians would work toward a kind of like socially, you know, a, a kind of, of justice situation or would become you know, good bearers of the gospel to the world and all of the richness and beauty that that could mean. And we will like basically pave the way for a new era. And like I heard one prominent Christian leader, a thoughtful Christian saying, maybe this is really about Jesus's second coming is more like a realization that people come to kind of at the same time around the world and it's deeply spiritual. But those are very different from this idea of, I think what in Greek is called the parousia, like this idea of the immediacy of like a whoosh moment. And I think it's true. I mean, it's totally true that then in these specific rapture theologies, there's the whoosh moment and then there's time and then others are punished and so on. But those groups, as you point, as I think you pointed out or could have pointed out as a point in your favor, disagree sharply about what that looks like and how. So there's no clear biblical path there. So there's no one who can really claim to have a corner on the market of this date, this date, this date, although people claim to and have charts and all kinds of things. I remember these charts from my childhood being presented. So I don't, I acknowledge what you're saying, but I think that the bigger distinction is between those who would see the second coming as maybe something more symbolic, less like being caught up in the air, more like a transformation as opposed to the suddenness. Well, I think that that's like, then you get the last word here. We're at five minutes. Go ahead. Okay. Well, well, then we don't have any discussion questions. We do. We do. We'll come up with them. But then I think you've veered outside of like what, what rapture theology is, because I, this is my, uh, if I could say in one sentence, why I'm going to argue against rapture theology is that it puts the emphasis on like the human perspective of what's going to happen when Jesus returns and judges the world. When the Bible itself, it, the focus is on Jesus, not on like, human understanding of it it could be that way i mean it could granted it could be that way and it could it could take a form where people try to control with very specific dates there are forms of rapture theology even in the model that you're talking about which are not so controlling and don't say jesus is coming back i asked okay now we're just into the other period that you just made up (laughs) here's okay here's so I asked one of our older colleagues, Tim Chahandarides, maybe he was some of your section leader. I said to him before this, before the quarantine began, while we were still on campus, I said, do you remember, he's been here for like 30 years. And I said, Tim, have you ever, have you ever had a moment like this on campus? He said there was only one. He said it was in 1988. He said it had to do with a pamphlet, a very popular one, which I received at a church I went to at the time with my parents. I was nine years old. 
88 reasons why Jesus is returning in 1988. He said it was pandemonium on campus. Pandemonium. <laughs> like extra speakers, have special moments. But that kind of thing, I don't think that that's essential. I think you're right that that's in the spirit of rapture theology. I do not think it is the that without which you would have to have rapture theology. See, we're two, we're two academics here, students. These are academics arguing about the term itself. You know, this is classic. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that that you. I'm I'm so glad that you brought that up because in the history of because it makes me look very stupid. <laughs> no, 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 no. It doesn't. It, rapture, no. it does make the rapture oh. look bad, though. It makes the rapture look bad. This 88 reasons and 1988 and stuff, right? I actually think it reveals it for what it is. But what I think it, about that is that throughout the history of Christianity in America, actually people have had millennial hopes, which is basically like in, in we, a book that hasn't come up yet, but it's been in the background of everything that we've been talking about is the book of revelation, or maybe you brought it up. I didn't bring it up, but so the book of revelation is um, a revealing of the end of time, right? So one of the things that Christians are known for is having a somewhat linear view of time. There's a beginning and there's an end, which not all cultures have had. And so this idea that, that there is an end to time, um, many Americans have been super uh, preoccupied with that. And rapture theology is a part of that preoccupation. But one of the things that I think is, I, I, you know, I come from a tradition that has emphasized this. I remember those kinds of pamphlets. Um, and I think it can be tempting for people to be disappointed when those millennial hopes, they're called kiliastic prophecies, if you want like a fun little, you know, term to bring out in the next uh, COVID-19 party you have with your household. But um, those, those prophecies, like when millennial hopes, like the idea that Jesus will come back, he will, in some way, there will be a millennial reign for a thousand years. And that's, that's um, something that Revelation talks about. Um, if our exact predictions, if they don't turn out to be true, and there are a lot of movements, not just in traditional Orthodox Christianity, but the Jehovah's Witnesses have had failed Kiliastic prophecies, um, Seventh-day Adventists, like groups, like when they don't happen, people can get really disillusioned. So I think this is sort of a, a utilitarian argument against the rapture, is that if we emphasize that, then we know, I'll just say this, to my knowledge, None of those rapture prophecies have come true. <laughs> um, and Plus, in every is, wait, era, we're in the we're in the tribulation. We're in, we're in the tribulation. The people have been raptured. It's been very few people. No one even noticed. Maybe. Okay. Let me do this. Let me ask on behalf of students out there. I know we're not live streaming this right now. There are probably a lot of people who care. Maybe some people who care about this issue who would love to ask a question. Let me ask on behalf of some anonymous student a question to you, Doctor Payne, that I think is a hard or obnoxious question. And you try to ask one that's a harder and obnoxious question to me or something like that. Okay. I've, I've got one for you. Yeah. Okay. I've got one for you too. You go first. We're in Bauman Auditorium. The mic is passed. A very a meager, a meek, mild student who has not spoken yet this entire semester has now dared to take the mic and says in a voice we can barely hear, but we can hear it, says this. I love how you're dramatizing this. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Doak and Dr. Payne for this, uh, for this discussion. I guess I'm just, I'm totally confused. I mean, in my church growing up and with my family and my grandma and my grandpa and my uncles and everybody in my church, like this idea of the rapture has been like the center of like a lot of our theology. And I've, I've accepted it as true. 
my family does as well, and it's really important to us. Are you saying, Dr. Payne, that basically we believe in a lie or just some fake attempt to control the world or we don't understand what God is doing in the world? Okay. Question. And I love that you made the student like really meek. Like, why couldn't you have made the student really combative and obnoxious? Okay. So I, this is how I'm going to answer that. I think that if, if I were to say, if you heard me saying that I don't think the second coming is real, then you didn't hear me or I didn't communicate well. I actually think that, and uh, this is another theology term, an imminent eschatology, the idea that Jesus uh, is going to come soon, that is something that in every age has energized the church. And I think that that is good for the church. It's good for the church on a number of levels. As Dr. Doak said, I totally agree with him on that. I think that the rapture is not central to that at all. And it's a newer theology. There are problems with it. I think that's true. But the idea that Jesus is going to come soon and that we should get excited about that and we should anticipate it. Um, N.T. Wright, the guy who wrote the book that you're, we're all reading this semester, he has some really beautiful ideas about that. Like, what does it look like when Jesus, the coming king, returns um, to earth. I think we should think about that. We should meditate on it. We should get excited about it. Um, but that is not the same thing as the rapture. So I think the rapture, it, I'm, I'm saying like, it's just not that useful. It's not that helpful for us. It's not actually spelled out directly in scripture. So we don't need it. That's what I'm saying. It's like, we can, we can just like leave that one out. I think, you know, I think one of the things that as a student, I definitely experienced this. I bet you did too, Dr. Payne. When you come to college and you start doing theology, like as a Christian, and you start hearing things about the Bible and theology, one of the great moments, I think it's a great coming of age moment. It's a great adulting kind of moment for all of us is realizing that maybe the church traditions we come from have a, have a very specific, beautiful, wonderful, you know, nurturing take on faith in any number of ways, but do not actually represent the entire body of Christians. And maybe, you know, and this is true for everyone, even you, dear meek student who asked that wonderful question, whether it's me, whether it's Dr. Payne, no matter who it is, all of us have a, not just like a right or, or, a, or an opportunity. We have like a core adult rational thinking responsibility to like learn about the faith tradition and interrogate and think about what we've received. Now, granted, I know sometimes, you know, that that can mean just like, going off to college and you like reject everything that your parents have ever taught you. The kind of cliche college journey is like you come from a conservative family, but then you get these liberal professors and you become a liberal and then you argue with your dad at Thanksgiving because now you're going to vote for Bernie Sanders, you know, and I don't, that's, you know, and, and, and theologically there can be a similar pattern like that, you know, like you reject the beliefs. I think too, though, I mean, I found this in my own life that there were some things that I, I rejected and I was very much like, Oh, and I think like, the rapture is one of those things for me. Like when I was, when I learned the things that Dr. Payne correctly said in her parts of the debate about it, I was like, ah, great. Thanks. So it's fake. So it's fake. Great. And I don't know, like there's a part of me, even as I get older, that an idea like the rapture appeals to me maybe more and more in a mystical way. And yes, maybe it's, maybe it's like my own take on the rapture tradition as opposed to what it might be in your church. True. But, um, I don't know, but, but I think you ever, I think we ever, so I, I don't think it's radical or crazy or anti-faith to question faith or question our church's traditions in, in a way. Like that doesn't mean that now you hate your parents or something like that. Um, no, I an think, adult. Yeah. I think like one of the harder parts of, of the Christian life is discernment. Like, you know, there, there are certain things that are 
really like clearly spelled out in the Bible, like don't commit adultery, you know, thou shalt not kill. Like those, those are kinds of things where it's like, God is pretty clear, you know, about like what, what we ought to do or don't covet or something like the 10 commandments. Although people argue about the 10 commandments a lot too. But anyway, um, I, I think that there are certain things that we think like love God, love your neighbor, but then there's just a lot of, of stuff that is not as clear. And I think when we get older and more mature, we start to realize that there are some gray areas and that can feel kind of uncomfortable. But I think the thing is, is one of the things that's a weird thing about just becoming an adult, adulting, as they say, is that you realize that there are certain situations where there are, there's like a black and white act, you know, something is definitely wrong. Something is definitely right. And it is our responsibility to act on that. Um, but I think one of the weird things about becoming an adult is that you see that there is just so much gray area in life. I think as a, as a parent, I see that all the time, you know, you're trying to do the right thing for your kids and, um, you know, you want to make sure. Um, and I think I always assumed like as a child that my parents, that the world was more black and white and that I was then, then it actually is now when I'm an adult, I'm kind of like, wow, my parents, you know? So I think that the familial model is for me helpful when I think about my own experience with church. Um, like my, as I get older, I tend to see now and, and appreciate things about my parents that I didn't when I was like 18 to 22, you know, because I thought like I had just learned everything that there was to know and what was wrong with my parents. And I think that that can be the experience of the Christian with the church, you know, like you might get to a certain age where you just think like, oh, it was all wrong. But then hopefully as you get older and as you mature, you can reflect back on the really, the beautiful things. Like I grew up in a tradition that really emphasized rapture theology. And I'll tell you what, one thing that I love is some of the art created about uh, like from rapture theology. Like one of my favorite songs is by a guy named Larry Norman called I wish we'd all been ready. And it's like straight up rapture theology, but it's beautiful. And I love it. Yeah. When I was, when I was a kid in Sunday school, one of the churches, my family attended in the Sunday school room, there was a big poster on the wall right across from where I would sit. And this poster was like a kind of like a big tableau of like some highways and the air and some mountains and a city and stuff. And like cars were crashing into each other. A plane was going down uh people were looking around disheveled and then like the the souls clad in white gowns were actually flying up toward heaven and jesus was up there in the clouds and it was like an image of the rapture and it was kind of kooky kind of kitschy sort of art not exactly high art let's say um but it is crazy how the rapture has had found its way even into film right like dr Payne is a scholar of christian popular culture and like you know right there was a film called um what was the film called uh the one where the little piles of clothes i was making a joke and a reference to that film where your clothes get left oh, behind. uh is it's not deep, left behind deep, deep in the night deep in the night, deep in the night. look it up on youtube look i mean if nothing else people i want to reflect on something dr Payne said though about parents i mean maybe conversations like this and hopefully the conversations we've been having could in a time of quarantine when you're forced to kind of get real with people around you force you to take responsibility for your beliefs and to actually talk to your parents talk to your grandparents talk to the people that you're with and be like look i have to, you know we've been together now for 17 days and no one has left the house it's time for me to be honest like this thing you think spiritually i just don't like it and here's why or for them to say that to you you know and for you to receive that as a child like i don't know those are important moments i think 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we've hoped for with this debate format is that it would show that there is a lot of diversity in the Christian tradition. Um, and there's there are certain things, very, there are a few things that we have gone through over the semester in the creed. These are essentials. And then there's just like this whole world of non-essentials. So what you think, the, the important thing is to think is to, if for Christians is to believe in the resurrection of the body. Jesus is raised from the dead and Jesus's people will be raised from the dead and they will enjoy, we'll get to, they'll enjoy life together with God. But th as to when and how those things happen, whoa, there's a ton of variety. And, um, you know, if you've got the right kind of family chemistry, that could be a lot of fun. My family, we like to drink a lot of coffee and argue with each other about theology and politics. Maybe your family does too. <laughs> my family did not like to drink coffee or argue we were the silent types we were the we were the denial types i do think though and maybe we were the wisconsin types right we were the wisconsin types the strong silent types okay but <laughs> i mean here's the thing i guess as we close that just this is like a this doesn't close the discussion it just opens it back up but we won't be able to pursue this i know it raises for me though this the central problem i think for experiencing faith in the world it's not just that the core ideas, which I encourage along with Dr. Payne for you to cling to as a person of faith, like cling to the creed. They don't just come to us though pure and alone. They come within a context. Yes. They come within these bigger structures. And the question for me, even, even in my own life of faith is how many of those side things can you actually shuck off like so much packaging before you actually just end up losing core things that have no meaning or no richness to them anymore without all that side stuff. And I think that that's a hard issue that I'm not even sure how to figure that out in my own life sometimes. Yeah. And I think that sometimes um, I agree that we should be not eager to just throw everything out, you know, because it is totally inaccurate to say like, you can just cling to the creed. Anybody who says that is not fully under is, it's not fully understanding and realizing their own cultural context. Like mm -hmm. Christianity is always embedded within a particular culture. And um, there's a kind of a truism in, at least in my field, is that the more people try historically, the more people try to say like, we're only going to do the Bible, the more they kind of reveal their own cultural whatevers. So like an example of that is the Puritans. Like they, there's a book called To Live Ancient Lives where Puritan, where, that talks about like Puritans were trying to only live by the Bible. But of course, when we look back on them, we're like, oh, wow, they were 17th century British people for sure, right? Like they're doing all kinds of weird, like culturally British things. So like you can't get outside of, of your culture. But I think that that's not necessarily a problem for the Christian message because the scriptures tell us that Jesus comes to be among us to be with us and ideally the more you know we pursue jesus the more we um become like him and we learn like what are the things that are the ones that are supposed to be essential and eternal but i think there's nothing wrong with celebrating whatever tradition you come from like i come from the charismatic tradition i am not embarrassed by that even though i know that some charismatics do things that are a little bit ridiculous i think that there's some beautiful things that they do too even the things that people think are like a little nuts. I, I appreciate, I like. I like that as a closing note. Forgive me students for scratching my head so often. I didn't take a shower today or yesterday. I don't want to say how much longer before that it was, but. 
Well, this is the first time that I have showered in several days. I'm oh, yeah. Like well, bad. just, to, you know, you got to have a special time in the car just to look right and kind of look at yourself and, and see what's happening. Yep. Yep. Hey, Godspeed to you all. We hope that you're doing well and that you're all safe and sound. Believe in the rapture. <laughs> or not. See ya. Thank you.